Good morning, everyone. You know, Rexdale is such a wonderful church, and I'm always honored when I have the privilege of coming here to share with you from God's Word. This morning, I'd like to take you on a journey through Psalm 73. We're going to address one of the big issues. Have you ever wondered why it is that people who try to really live for God always seem to have the problems And people who don't care about God, they just do their own thing, always seem to have life so easy. Have you ever wondered about that? Well, this is one of the issues we face here in Psalm 73. So if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to turn there. I took our staff from our church in Bangkok, Thailand, to one of the beautiful beaches of Thailand. You know they're some of the best in the world. And as we were retreating, we decided that one afternoon we should spend certainly swimming in the wonderful ocean. And so we spent time, and as we were there, my one assistant and I decided that really there was another beach just over a huge pile of rocks. And we decided we should go and investigate that beach. And so rather than, you know, going out to the road and walking around the road and coming all the way in, we thought we'd take a shortcut over the rocks. And so we started down that way, but uh, I forgot one thing. When rocks get wet, rocks get slippery. And the next thing I knew, I was headed for the Adam and Sea. And the only thing that stopped me was a huge rock at the bottom of this slippery rock, and I hit it rather forcefully. I felt a lot of pain. I looked down and I saw... My my toes going this way, but one was going completely that way. Well, you know the rest of the story. Uh, The psalmist tells us that he's going through an experience something like that. Do you notice? uh, uh, First of all, let me introduce him to you. His name is Asaph. Asaph was uh, going about an experience of slipping, he talks about. But you first see Asaph back in 1 Chronicles chapter 16 and verse 7, where there you read, David first committed to Asaph this psalm of thanks to the Lord. If you go back and study about who he was, you will see that if we were using modern terminology, he would be the music pastor of the tabernacle. And we are told that he had 288 musicians. Now, we've got a great group of musicians, and you're doing a great job, young people. Keep it up. And so this is the first I've ever heard of something like that, but it's wonderful. But Asaph was leading 288 musicians in the worship of God. He was a a Levite, and uh, he wrote 12 of the Psalms we have in the book of Psalms. And as you come to Psalm 73, he describes his situation. Notice it in verse 2. He says, But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. Now, he wasn't talking about sliding into the Adam and Sea. He was talking about his spiritual experience. He went on a spiritual slide. And it came to the point that it was so bad for him, he wanted to give up. He wanted to just quit. Now let me ask you the question. In his discouragement, 
He was in that state. Have you ever been there? Have you ever come to that place? What is it that maybe made you give up? I have to admit there were at least four times in my ministry that I really, really came close to giving up. And uh, when I was here last year, I, I gave you from time to time pieces of my story, so I'm not going to repeat it other than to remind you. When I went in ministry, we didn't have a choice where we went to go, but when I got to my first church, I almost gave up within a month of being there because I didn't know it, but three months before I got there, the church divided in half. Half of the group moved out to form another church because they didn't think they were ever going to get a pastor. They thought they could bring another pastor in from somewhere else. And I got there, building half started. They couldn't pay me hardly anything. I had no place to live. They didn't even know I was coming. And oh, it was a terrible experience. I almost gave up. And then... Later in our ministry, when my wife got so ill and the doctor told me I'd never take her out of the hospital again, and I had to go home to my church and my three little children at that point, and believe me, I almost gave up. I didn't know how I could ever carry on. And then you know the story of our son, 14 years of age, and disappeared. And for 21 years, we hardly ever knew where he was. And believe me, at that point, when it first happened, I almost gave up. I, how do you carry on? Thankfully, my leadership in the denomination wouldn't let me give up, but I almost did. And then that terrible day when the doctors told me I had a tumor in my head and had to go through that nine-and-a-half-hour surgery that left me in my condition that I'm in. Some of you don't know about that, but... I almost gave up. I said, how can I ever go up in front of people and minister again? And there were times like this. What tempts you to give up? You look over your life, how many times have you been ready to throw in the towel? Well, that was certainly Asaph in his discouragement. And he gives us some of the reasons, of course. His problem was, as I stated earlier, verse 3. He says here, for I, I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And he goes on to explain, how can people who are so rich and care nothing about God have no problems? And I want to take you on a quick journey. I'm sort of paraphrasing this uh, because we've got to get to the main points. But he talks about these people, starting in verse 4. He says, these rich people, they don't have problems in their lives. And when it comes to the end of life, it just, they sleep into death. And that's all it is. He says also, they're full of pride and arrogance. They can say, look who I am. Look what I have. Look where I've gone. Look what I've done. They're focused on themselves and their pride and their accomplishments or what they have. He says in verse 7, their evil seems to have no limit. And putting it in modern terms, they climb the corporate ladder, tramping on other people, but it doesn't seem to bother. They never seem to suffer. They don't care about integrity. They just are in in determined to make it to the highest level. He says they have all the friends, verse 10. People flock around them because they have the money. They scoff at the idea that there could be God. Well, if there is, I have no time for that. I, I just have no time for God. 
and they scoff at that idea. And they're carefree, the psalmist says. They can have what they want. They can do what they want. They can go where they want to go. They have no limitations, no restrictions. And so his conclusion, I mean, have you ever seen this before? In verses 13 and 14, here is his conclusion. Surely in vain I kept my heart pure. In vain I have washed my hands in innocence. What is he saying? I I should never become a Christian. This was his conclusion. I've had enough. I have to quit. I've only been punished since I've made my commitment. I should have never tried to live a holy life. In fact, I should never become a Christian because I've only had problems since I made my commitment. Some of you felt that way? And we better be careful when we try to lead people to Jesus. We must never tell them that their life is going to be easier after because there are lots of issues that come up, especially when we live in cross-culture situations, when we as Christians follow God's word instead of the trends of society. It's not an easy life. And the psalmist comes to the point, I've had enough. I quit. He also tells us in verse 14, this, this is troublesome to me. Do you notice what he says in verse 14? He, he says, I have to keep all this in myself. I don't dare tell anybody. I don't dare share with somebody because I might be a stumbling block to them. Here I am, the main musician. And so what he is basically concluding, I've got to keep this all within myself and so I have to wear a mask. Isn't that terrible? Isn't it awful that in the people of God, the body of Christ, we can't share? I mean, what would happen to you if you greeted someone in our traditional way in Canada, you know, how are you? Oh, I'm just fine. But what if you said to them, I'm ready to quit. I don't want to go to church anymore. I'm giving up. What do you think they'd say to you? We just have this idea that in the body of Christ, we've got to misrepresent what we really are. In the body of Christ, where we're supposed to be able to encourage one another and bear one another's burdens and pray for one another and help one another, we need to have a new ecclesiology about the church and what the church is really for. And we've got to pull off the mask, maybe, for our own benefit and be willing to share with people that we're really struggling and gather people around us to pray and encourage and strengthen us in those times. But he couldn't. He had to, as far as he was concerned, he could not share his struggles. Did no one see what was happening to him? That's the other question I have when I think through this psalm. Was there nobody in all of these people, even the 228 musicians, did none of them see how he was struggling? It's incredible to me that he could wear a mask and put up that front when he was dying within and ready to quit. Could I encourage you? Don't bear your burden alone. Freedom from Depression, the book written, the man, the author reminds us that 20 to 25 percent of people go through very serious bouts of depression at some time. It results in certain things, and I just want to mention these things because these are characteristics of deep depression. He says social withdrawal. In other words, I don't want to be around people. 
I don't want to go to church anymore. I don't want to be where I have to be around people. We withdraw. He talks about decreased motivation. I don't want to get up and go to work anymore. I've got no motivation. Sleep disturbances. Can't sleep very well anymore. He talks about uh, lessened sex drive or abnormal sex drive that begins to dominate our thinking and our way. Increased anxiety, edginess, and so on. I could go on with the list. These are characteristics of what happens to us when we really get depressed and discouraged. And it does happen. Now, if you're here this morning and you're really on top, just tuck this away in your pocket because you just might need it sometime because we never know what we're going to have to face. Are these characteristics, though, of you this morning? Are you like Asaph in discouragement, even contemplating quitting? Oh, please don't do that. Behind your smiling faces, I know some of you are having struggles. Last night, as I shared with this, there were people who came to me and said, that I needed that. You, this is where I am right now, and it helped me so much. I hope this will help you, because I'm thankful that we, we don't end the psalm there. But, you know, sometimes we get to that point where we're so discouraged, and we would say with the psalmist in Psalm 55, verse 6, Have you ever felt this way? Oh, that I had wings like a dove. Then I could fly away and be at rest. you ever wish that? I could just be like a bird and fly away from all of this. Well, that's really not the answer to life situations. We have to face them. You know, this cry is heard, and it hasn't changed much over the centuries when you really think about it. I was reading the 2008 report of Statistics Canada, And it tells us in that report that our suicide rate is ranked in the top third of all countries of the world. Now, if you travel around the world, you're not surprised, are you, that everybody wants to come to Canada. Everywhere I go, they talk about, oh, I wish I lived in Canada. And yet here we are, so many people in Canada wanting to commit suicide. It tells us that it's the second leading cause of death in those ages 15 to 19. That shocked me. It also is the leading cause of death for men aged 25 to 29 and 40 to 44. In Ontario, more men committed suicide in the past 10 years than died in car crashes. Well, I have met so many people in my ministry who've gone through deep and and, and out out uh, discouragements where they just want to quit, left their suicide notes, determined that the only way out was to end their lives. I hope that would not happen to us, but sometimes we can get to that point where we just feel we can't go anymore. As I've ministered over the years, I've discovered that people want to quit because they're, some of these reasons, they're facing financial pressure they just can't seem to get out of. They are overtaxed in their schedules. They're so busy and worn out all the time. Their marriage is rocky. Their spouse and themselves, they can't seem to make it work. There's unfaithfulness. There are wayward children that cause so much pain. People in the church who've been fighting, some of you are really bearing scars of church fights that you've had to go through. And many times you feel like, if that's what church is, I want to quit. Well, I hope that's not true in Rexdale. I think there's a happy body here, and I'm glad about that. Struggles with long-term sickness. 
you get to the point where you wonder how much more you can take. Uh, some of you go to college and all of a sudden what you once believed, all of your foundation is shaken because your professors try to make fun of you and try to tell you you're an idiot if you believe those things that, uh, that Christians believe. There's no tolerance for Christianity anymore. And, well, I could go on and on with the list. Uh, I remember watching a, a video one night. It was entitled, Something Funny Happened at the Symphony. Now, I'm dating myself, and some of you will remember the names of Tim Conley and Charlie Farquharson. I see some of you smiling, you know. Well, they were featured, but there was also on this program a, a professional concert pianist and a man who played a tire pump along with the pianist. And when it came time for them to play, the pianist started playing, and it was the most discordant music you'd, you could imagine. And the tire pumpist was having all kinds of t difficulty getting the tune out of his tire pump. But suddenly he stopped and he screamed at the pianist, You've got the music upside down! So the concert pianist turned the music over and started to play the William Tell Overture. And uh, the pumpist, I couldn't believe it, played the exact tune on his tire pump. And it brought the house down. Well, I use that illustration because sometimes, you know, we get the music upside down. And this is certainly what Asaph had in his experience. I don't know whether you picked it up. When I reviewed what, what uh, he started to believe, did you think about some of the things he was saying? But I point out to you that he got so discouraged and so distorted, everything was upside down to him. And he started to think, say things and believe things that were so far from the truth. For instance, he infers, if you're rich, you must be wicked. Is that true? I know many very rich people who are very, very godly people. But the psalmist in his head was thinking, if you're rich, you, 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 you're wicked. Secondly, he talks about rich people don't struggle with health issues. And when it comes to the end of life, they just sort of sleep off into death. Is that true? Absolutely not. I built a nursing home in Burlington, and we saw people there who were not Christians. Non-Christians don't die easily. But that's what he thought. He was believing that. And he says, rich people have all the friends. They go through the party circle. They, but you know something? Rich people don't have many friends. I used to relate to ambassadors and their wives from all over the world, and I found they were some of the most unhappy, lonely people around. And they had their circle of activities, but beyond that, they were not very happy. They, were, they had no friends. There were no relationships. Rich people do not always have the friends. He says, they're carefree. I see a lot of rich people that aren't very free because they're glued to that television watching what's happening to the stock market. And that stock market better not go down or, boy, there's not much freedom. Their eyes are glued to what they have. Too busy to have proper marriages and family life and everything. 
It's amazing, friends, what we can begin to think, what we can really begin to believe when we really get discouraged. It's amazing what people can begin to think about their pastors and their church, more importantly about their spouses and about their family, about their work situation. It's amazing to me how we can even begin to think so distortedly about our Christian experience and even about God. And this was Asaph in complete despair. And I want to point out it's not just Asaph, but it's quite general. Remember Elijah? There was Elijah. He said there in 1 Kings 19, I'm the only one left in all Israel who has a heart for God. Was that true? God had to open his eyes and say, Here, wake up. There are many, many more. But Elijah, after that contest with the 450 priests of Baal, where fire came down from heaven, such incredible victory, you'd think he would be sky high. But the next day he's confronted by one woman and he runs. I thought that would get a little bit of response from you. (laughs) Confront 450 priests of Baal, but one woman makes him run. And the next thing, he's under the tree and he's saying, I can't face one more day. Take my life. So some of the most godly people go through these kinds of experiences. You find them there under the juniper tree. Discouragement distorts our thinking so often in our real situation about money and about our self-worth and our value and what's important in life. And remember what Proverbs 4.23 tells us. This is an important verse. Be careful what you think because your thoughts can ruin your life. Did you know that was in the Bible? Be careful what you think because your thoughts can ruin your life. When I was preparing to go to Thailand, I had to go through the medical exam. And I remember the doctor saying to me as he was asking me what I was going to do, I, he, I almost fell off the chair, literally, when he said to me, I wish I could do something to bring more meaning to my life. Here's a doctor that's helping people get over sickness. He's helping new babies be born in the world. He's, he's curing people of illnesses. And he says... I wish I could find more purpose in my life. His passion was completely gone, even though he was helping so many other people. Thankfully, Asaph finds a solution for facing the difficulties he was going through. And verse 17 gives us, and this may seem strange to you, but notice what he says in verse 17. I entered the sanctuary of God. I found that when most people get discouraged, the first thing they do is leave the church. They don't want to go to church. Now, it's not really... I'm not, I don't think he's saying, I, start, I, I, I started to go back to church. No, he was in church all the time. What he's saying is, I found a sanctuary with God and met God alone. And as I met with God, God changed his perspective. You know, going to a church is not a bad idea. 
And maybe a good thing if you're really in discouragement, it wouldn't hurt to come and sit in the church and just quietly encounter God and allow God to minister to you. You can spend time praying and meditating and getting your life back up instead of being upside down. Locato reminds us, however, that sometimes when we try, there's inner chaos first opens up within us and all these thoughts about all we have to do and where we have to go. Pressure to get busy again. Get back to where the action is. But I want to encourage you to learn to be quiet in your times of discouragement. This is contrary to our life pattern, especially in America. We're so busy all the time. Archibald uh, Hart, in his book, Biblical Concepts of Time, also hits on a very important issue when he says, we live in an underslept society. And he blames the fact that so many people go through so much dysfunction and so much noise, and they never take time to rest and deal, allow the sleep to drain off some of their emotional stress. I think that's true with a lot of us. Maybe we need also to recover the whole concept of Sabbath, where God reminds us that six days we work and we better take one day to make sure we rest and worship. I see that violated so much, and people have a lot of trouble because of it. Stop your work from dehumanizing you and creating burnout. God wants you to take time to recalibrate the soul. I remember I was... When I was supervising the churches, uh, I was driving in, in uh, Nova Scotia one time, and I was just worn out, burned out, and really discouraged. And I, as I was driving back to Ontario, I saw a church up on the side of the hill, and I decided I had to go to that church. And I drove up there, and fortunately the door was open. Usually churches are locked nowadays because of what people misuse churches. But I spent time there. I don't know how long I spent, but it was lengthy. And God so met me and just changed my whole perspective. Uh, It was a significant time of renewal where God really changed my perspective. And this is what happens to Asaph. God gave him two pictures there when he got alone with him. God first, he said, Asaph, I want to give you the true picture of the ungodly people. Now, I'm going to paraphrase this uh, quickly. He says, Asaph, you think that they've got it all together and everything is just wonderful. But I want to tell you something, Asaph. They have no foundation under them. You take away their money and they've got nothing. There's nothing to keep them stable. They'll be swept away like the, with the floodwaters. Their money is their security. Now it's nothing, and they have nothing. Isn't that true? When the 1977 crisis hit in Thailand, started it, but all through Asia, so many men in Thailand were jumping off the buildings they were building because they saw no hope. You maybe heard German billionaire Adolf Merkel in this last crisis, money crisis in our world, he ended up the billionaire committing suicide because he couldn't handle it, couldn't cope. And then he says in verse 27, not only do they have no foundation, but Asaph remember one other thing, very important. When it's all over, 
they're going to stand before me in judgment. Now, Asaph, let me give you another picture. And God tells Asaph there, Asaph, I'm with you. I'm holding you by the right hand. I'm going to give you wisdom and direction through all of this situation. I'm going to guide and counsel you. And Asaph, never forget, in the end, you're going to be with me in glory. Do you notice what Asaph said? Verse 23. You talked about humor in the Bible. Asaph said, what a donkey I've been. That's what he says. He says, I was a brute beast before you. What's a brute beast? A donkey. I've been acting like a donkey. Well, Asaph's conclusion, he was senseless and ignorant, and it was a statement of repentance. And he finds life-changing results when he got quiet before God. Life is not about us using God, but God using us. And discovering this, it gives a whole new paradigm to our lives. I can't spend a lot of time on this, but Brueggemann, who's probably the most outstanding theologian in the Old Testament, reminds us that when we go through this, if we, the whole focus, if we focus on prayer and pray ourselves through situations, we will find ourselves moving if we don't, we, or, yeah, we will move from attachments to dis, dis, uh, attachment. In other words, if you don't pray, you're going to try to grab onto anything that will try to help you. You need this, you need to go here. But you come to the point where you are dis, uh, um, dis, detached. That's the word I'm trying to come up with. Detached from those things. You move away from self-dependence to dependence on God. And you move away from autonomy where you try to do everything through by yourself to the point where you have a deep dialogue and a, a deep sense of relationship with God. And that's what you need to discover. Henry Nouwen, who of course was the professor, uh, a psychologist at Harvard and Yale, who came to Toronto here to help disabled people, wrote many wonderful things. And one thing he wrote, we do not take the spiritual life seriously if we do not set aside time to be with God. When we do, however, I suggest to you that God does amazing things in us as we spend time with him. He gives us perspective. We hear his voice in those times. I remember God giving me two pictures when my wife was so sick in the hospital. I remember how God gave me perspective. I remember also when I was going through that surgery, God relieves anxiety. He really can give you a peace that passes understanding to keep your hearts and minds when you're burdened by those heavy things. He gives us a peace. He gives us grace. As he said, my grace is going to be sufficient and my power will be shown in your weakness. And when our son disappeared, I can't tell you, Through 21 years, he gave us a peace. He gave us such grace and power and wisdom to handle all that was involved in this. God grows godly character in us when we trust him in those difficult times. He builds the fruit of the Holy Spirit within us. Partington says, when we open our whole being to the Lord, we drink in the peace and the rest of the Holy Spirit. And we soon learn 
There are certain things in life we just cannot control. It's important for you to realize this, and I know you do. You cannot control health or money or friends, and you have difficulty sometimes controlling family. But those external things, it's important that at that time, even though they put the pressure on us, we learn how to control the inner being so that we don't let those things invade us and destroy us. So I ask what keeps you from the sanctuary if you're really discouraged today. Spend time with God. The Lord wants to meet you in an incredible way. And I'm sure he'll give you two pictures about your situation. William Longstaff captured it in the truth when he said, Take time to be holy. Speak off with your Lord. He goes on to say, Take time to be holy. The world rushes on. Spend much time in secret with Jesus alone. And by looking to Jesus, like him you will be, your friends, your church leaders, your family, your congregation, in your conduct, his likeness will see. And so I bring you the words from Asaph this morning. One final thought, and I have to close. And that is this. Verse 1 is really his conclusion. He concludes by making a statement about God and then tells us why he believes it. He starts out by saying to us, God is so good. And then he goes on to tell you about all of his experience that led him to come to the conclusion that God is good. And he says, it's so good to be near God. To make him, the sovereign Lord, my refuge, my dwelling place, my home. May I encourage you, God is so good. He will take you through those times of real discouragement as you trust him and cling to him and draw from him all that he provides. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, bless your word today. Behind the smiling faces of those who are here, there are some I know that are quite discouraged, whatever the circumstance might be. Lift their perspective, Lord, to see that you want to meet them You don't want them to give up. You don't want them to throw in the towel. You want them to experience your nearness, your closeness, your strength, your initiative, your wisdom, your guidance, your help in their time of need. So bless your word and thank you that you haven't hid from us an experience of Asaph who was a leader. Thank you that you've opened your word and allowed us to see the inner heart of a man who went through such struggles. It helps us, and we learn from him today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much, Bob, for unfolding God's word to us. And I'm sure that each one of us were touched by God's word and the situation that we're facing in life, even right now. My blessing is that you would go forth knowing that God loves you. And he has the power to save, but he's also provided the family of God to help you walk through that. And so may you put your trust in him and walk together this week. God bless you.